0: Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one from our mystery series is titled The Mystery of the Mary Celeste. And it's a humdinger of a sea mystery that has gone unsolved for over 135 years. We're going to tell you this story, let you sort through the clues, and see if you can come up with the truth of what really happened. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. The Mary Celeste was an American merchant brigantine that was discovered on December 4, 1872 off the Azores Islands, sailing with no one on board and with her lifeboat missing. When found by the Canadian brigantine Die Gracia. Mary Celeste was in a disheveled but seaworthy condition, under partial sale. The last log entry was ten days earlier. She had left New York for Genoa a month previously and was well provisioned. Her cargo of 1,701 barrels of denatured alcohol was mostly undisturbed, with the exception of nine barrels, which later were discovered to have leaked out their contents. Not abnormal for a ship's contents— the captain and crew's personal belongings were undisturbed. None of those who had been on board were seen or heard from again. Mary Celeste was launched under British registration as Amazon in 1861, prior to her discovery as an abandoned ship. She survived a myriad of mishaps and went through three skippers, one dying mysteriously on board and the other two, no doubt, happy to part company. According to our favorite old salt Captain David Williams' account at www.deafwhale.com forward slash Mary Celeste. And I'll spell that for you. Deaf whale being D E A F W H A L E, and Mary Celeste is M A R Y Celeste, C E L E S T E. The crew was delighted to finally get underway on the morning of 7th November, 1872, when Captain Benjamin S. Briggs gave the order to hoist anchor. They had departed New York Harbor two days earlier, but were forced to anchor off Staten Island, waiting on the heavy seas to slacken. On board with the 37-year-old captain were his 30-year-old wife, Sarah Elizabeth, and their second child, 2-year-old Sophia. Sarah had insisted on bringing along her melodeon to break the monotony of the long voyage with song. She had also brought along her sewing machine and toys for Sophia. They had left behind their 7-year-old son so he could stay in school. The seven-man crew consisted of 28-year-old first mate Albert G. Richardson, 25-year-old second mate Andrew Gillings, and 23-year-old steward and cook Edward Head. The four Germans serving as seamen were Volkert Lorenzen, 29, his brother Boz Lorenzen, 23, Arian Martins, 35, and Gottlieb Gudschad, 23. An hour after weighing anchor, the 103-foot, 282-ton half-brigantine was under full sail on its way to Genoa, Italy. The little ship was due to enter the Mediterranean Sea through the Strait of Gibraltar no later than the 6th of December. But something dreadful went wrong, and for nearly 150 years, people have been trying to solve the mystery of the Mary Celeste and her occupants. The Mary Celeste story begins on May 18th, 1861, on the shores of Spencer's Island, Nova Scotia. Boat builder Joshua Dewis must have watched proudly as his maritime yellow birch half brig slipped her ropes and effortlessly entered the still waters of the Bay of Fundy. The 30-meter, 180-ton brigantine, soon to be named Amazon, was about to begin its trial run to the nearby port of Parsborough. He had no idea his ship would go down in the annals of history as the Mary Celeste, A ship which many mariners felt carried a jinx, a ship that was to lose two of her masters, ram another ship in the English Channel, run aground near Cape Breton Island, be towed into various ports for numerous changes and repairs and refits. Then finally appear abandoned and adrift, a ghost ship in the Atlantic Ocean, her crew and captain and his family mysteriously gone. As author Paul Begg writes in The Case of the Mary Celeste, she was built in 1860-61, the maiden venture of a consortium of pioneer shipbuilders at the shipyards of Joshua Dewis on Spencer's Island, Nova Scotia. She was originally christened the Amazon and was launched in 1861, the year that saw the start of the American Civil War. Tragedy struck a short while later when her first skipper, a Scot named Robert McClellan, fell ill and died mysteriously. Then one John Nutting Parker assumed command and skippered the Amazon's maiden voyage. But she ran into a fishing weir off Maine, received a large gash in her hull, and had to go to the shipyards for repair. While she was there, a fire broke out amidships, bringing Captain Parker's short lived command to an end. Amazon's first Atlantic crossing went without mishap until she entered the Straits of Dover and then collided with a brig. The brig sank. Amazon again went for repairs, and her third skipper went to seek another command. Following the necessary repairs and the appointment of a new captain, Amazon returned to America, and she promptly ran aground off Cal Bay, Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia. Amazon's history now becomes a little hazy. She was pulled off the rocks and repaired, but appears to have passed from one owner to another, several of whom seem to have gone bankrupt, and none of whom derived any good from their contact with the ship. She eventually passed into the hands of J. H. Winchester and Company, a consortium of New York shipowners. Sometime during late September or early October in 1872, Mary Celeste was berthed at Pier 44 in New York's East River, preparing to take on a new cargo and a fresh crew. Benjamin Spooner Briggs, the latest captain of Mary Celeste, was a stern, Puritan New Englander. He was born at Wareham, Massachusetts on 24th of April, 1835, the second of five sons born to Captain Nathan Briggs and his wife, Sophia. He was described by those who knew him as always bearing the highest character as a Christian and as an intelligent and active shipmaster. He was also a shareholder in the Mary Celeste. The first mate was Albert G. Richardson, a soldier in the American Civil War. He had married a niece of James H. Winchester's and had served before with Captain Briggs. He seems to have been trustworthy and competent and was held in high esteem. Andrew Gilling was the second mate. His birthplace was given as New York, but he seems to have been of Danish extraction. Again, there is no reason to suspect that he was other than upright and honest. The cook and steward, Edward William Head, hailed from Brooklyn, New York, where it is said that he was respected by all. The four general seamen were all Germans from the Frisian Islands, the brothers Volkert and Boz Lorenzen, Arian Martins and Gottlieb Goodshad. A later testimonial would describe them as peaceable and first-class sailors. In a letter to his mother shortly before the voyage, Briggs declared himself eminently satisfied with the ship and crew. Sarah Briggs informed her mother that the crew appeared to be quietly capable, if they continue as they've begun. We finished loading last night and shall leave on Tuesday morning if we don't get off tomorrow night, the Lord willing, he wrote. Our vessel is in beautiful trim, and I hope we shall have a fine passage. But as I've never been in her before, I can't say how she'll sail. Hoping to be with you again in the early spring. With much love, Benj. The Briggs family enjoyed their time in New York. Benjamin hired a horse-drawn carriage to Sarah and Sophia on an excursion through Central Park. The night before their departure, the couple went to dinner at the Astor House in the Wharf District with an old friend, Captain David Morehouse, and his wife, Desiah. According to her testimony, years later, Morehouse was a native of Digby County, Nova Scotia. He was the skipper of the Die Gracia, which means "by the grace of God," in Latin. A new brigantine, freshly built the year before in Bear River, a shipbuilding port on the Annapolis Basin, the Canadian-registered D. Die Gracia was moored in New York Harbor next to the Mary Celeste. During dinner, both captains compared notes and learned that their respective routes across the Atlantic Ocean were to be similar. Morehouse's vessel was carrying a cargo of petroleum bound for Gibraltar. However, he wasn't to leave for another eight days. As the evening concluded, the two friends shook hands and wished each other a safe voyage. As previously mentioned, but worth repeating, making the voyage into the unknown were Captain Briggs' wife, Sarah Elizabeth, the daughter of the preacher of the Congregational Church in Marion, Massachusetts, and one of their two children, two-year-old Sophia Matilda, the elder child, their son, Arthur Stanley, remained at home. Thus read the ship's list, giving the names of those who sailed and were doomed to vanish without a trace. Late on Saturday, the 2nd of November, 1872, Mary Celeste's cargo was loaded and made secure. She carried 1,701 barrels of denatured alcohol being shipped by Meissner Ackerman & Company, merchants of New York, to H. Masarenes & Company of Genoa, Italy. Early on the 5th of November, The Sandy Hook pilot ship towed Mary Celeste from Pier 44 to the lower bay off Staten Island, New York. The Atlantic was particularly stormy for the time of year, and Briggs was forced to drop anchor for two days before he dared to venture out to sea on the 7th of November. But although Mary Celeste herself would make many more voyages, it was the last time anyone would see this particular crew. As the Mary Celeste departed, the Canadian De Gracia lay in nearby Hoboken, New Jersey, awaiting a cargo of petroleum destined for Gibraltar. Her captain, David Morehouse, previously mentioned, and his first mate, Oliver Devoe, were Nova Scotians, both highly experienced and respected seamen. The De Gracia departed for Gibraltar on November fifteenth, eight days after the Mary Celeste, following the same general route. At about 1 p.m. on Wednesday, December fourth, eighteen seventy-two. Land time, Thursday, December 5th, sea time. Gracia had reached a position of 38 degrees 20 north, 17 degrees 15 west, midway between the Azores and the coast of Portugal. As Captain Morehouse came on deck, the helmsman reported a vessel about six miles distant, heading unsteadily towards Diagracia. The ship's erratic movements and the odd set of her sails led Morehouse to suspect something was wrong. Hi, everyone. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. As the vessels drew close, he could see no one on deck, and receiving no reply to his signals, sent DeVoe and second mate John Wright to investigate. Having established from the name on her stern that she was the Mary Celeste out of New York, the pair climbed aboard, where they found the ship deserted. The sails, partly set, were in poor condition, some missing altogether, and much of the rigging was damaged, with ropes hanging loosely over the sides. The main hatch cover was secure, but the fore and lazarette hatches were open, their covers beside them on the deck. The ship's single lifeboat, which had apparently been stowed across the main hatch, was missing, while the binnacle housing the ship's compass had shifted from its place, its glass cover broken. There was about 3.5 feet of water in the hold, a significant but not alarming amount for a ship this size. A makeshift sounding rod, which is a device for measuring the amount of water in the hold, was found abandoned on the deck. The last entry on the ship's daily log found in the mate's cabin was dated at 8 a.m. on November 25th, nine days earlier. It recorded Mary Celeste's position then as 37 degrees 01 north, 25 degrees 01 west. "'off Santa Maria Island in the Azores, "'nearly 400 nautical miles from the point "'where the Die Gracia encountered her. Devoe saw that the cabin interiors were wet and untidy "'from water which had entered through doorways and skylights, "'but were otherwise in reasonable order. "'In Briggs's cabin, Devoe found personal items scattered about, "'including a sheathed sword under the bed, "'but most of the ship's papers, "'together with the captain's navigational instruments, "'were missing.' Galley equipment was neatly stowed away. There was no food prepared or under preparation, but there were ample provisions in the stores. There were no obvious signs of fire or violence. The evidence indicated an orderly departure from the ship by means of the missing lifeboat. Additional information providing us with facts needed to solve the mystery of the abandoned ship and the fate of her occupants is offered here by Captain David Williams. The boarding crew noticed her jib and foretopmast staysail set on a starboard tack. The foresail and the upper foretopsail had been mostly blown away. The standing rigging was in good order, but some of the running rigging was also blown away. Her masts, yards and spars, and anchors and chains were all right. A stout rope about a 100 meters long used to hoist the outer end of the gaff sail called a main peak halyard was broken and most of it missing. The main staysail was lying loose on the forward house, and all the rest of the sails were furled. The bilge pump, positioned just forward of the mainmast, was found in good working condition. However, DeVoe noticed that the sounding rod used to measure water in the bilge was laying on the deck. Next to the rod was a valve that had been removed from one of the two large bilge tubes feeding down to the bilge. DeVoe testified that the valve had to be taken out so that the sounding rod could be lowered down the bilge tube to measure the water. DeVoe testified that he dropped the rod down the open tube and found three and one-half feet of water in her, an amount that would not have been noticed above her cargo except by using the sounding rod. There was a foot of water swashing around on the galley floor in the forward house. The water likely came in from the open scuttle on the roof and the open door because the port side of the forward house, which had no door or scuttle, was dry. There was also a great deal of water between decks, likely because both the fore cargo hatch and the lazarette hatch were off, lying on the deck nearby. The main hatch was securely fastened. The compass stand was broken and the compass destroyed. The wheel was not lashed alley as is the procedure normal observed when abandoning a sailing ship in an emergency. The six windows around the slightly raised aft deck cabin were battened with canvas and board. The skylight on the cabin top was raised open. The captain's bed was unmade and wet. The water likely came from the opened skylight. The captain's chronometer, sextant, navigation book, ship's register, and other papers were missing. The log book and the log slate were found in the mate's cabin. There were six months' provisions in the storeroom and plenty of drinking water. We know the food and water was not contaminated because the salvage crew ate and drank from these supplies when they sailed the ship to port. On inspecting the forward house, Oliver DeVoe found the door open. In addition, the scuttle hatch covering the hatchway in the roof of the galley was off. However, the small windows around the raised portion of the forward house were shut. No cooked food was found anywhere on the vessel. The pots and pans were cleaned and stored properly. However, the large cast-iron galley stove had been lifted up by some strange force and set down out of place, no longer resting inside the four heavy chocks that secured each leg of the stove to the galley floor. The heavy water cask, normally chalked down on the deck to prevent it from sliding when the ship was heeled over in a strong wind, was also found moved about, as if some powerful force had acted upon it. The crew's clothing was left behind. Their rain gear, boots, and even their smoking pipes were found near their berths in the forecastle. There was no sign of fire or smoke damage anywhere on board, nor was any evidence found that the ship had nearly capsized. Her hull appeared in good condition and was described as nearly new. The boarding party concluded that the Mary Celeste was in good sailing order. Only the small yawl lashed on top of the main hatch was gone. A section of railing running alongside was also removed to allow launching of the boat over the side. Deep cuts in the wooden railing and on the top of the hatch where the yawl had been stored indicated that the crew had used an axe to cut the yawl loose rather than take the time to untie it properly. The evidence was clear. Captain Briggs and his family and crew had abandoned the Mary Celeste in great haste. DeVoe reported these findings to Morehouse, who agreed to bring the derelict into Gibraltar, 600 nautical miles away. Under maritime law, a salvor could expect a substantial share of the combined value of vessel and cargo, depending on the degree of danger inherent in the salvaging. Die Gracia's complement of eight was divided between the two vessels. DeVoe and two experienced seamen were assigned to Mary Celeste, leaving Morehouse and four others with the Die Gracia. The weather was relatively calm for most of the way to Gibraltar, but with each ship seriously undermanned, progress was slow. Die Gracia reached Gibraltar on 12th of December, 1872, and the Mary Celeste, which had encountered fog, arrived on the following morning. She was immediately impounded by the Vice Admiralty Court, preparatory to salvage hearings. De Vaux wrote to his wife that the ordeal of bringing the ship in was such that I can hardly tell what I am made of, but I do not care so long as I got in safe. I shall be well paid for the Mary Celeste. The salvage court hearings began in Gibraltar on december seventeenth, eighteen seventy two under James Cochrane, the Chief Justice of Gibraltar. The hearing was conducted by Frederick Sally Flood, Attorney General of Gibraltar, who was also advocate general and proctor for the Queen in her office of Admiralty. Flood had been described by historians of the Mary Celeste affair as a man, quote, whose arrogance and pomposity were inversely proportional to his IQ, unquote, and as, quote, the sort of man who, once he had made up his mind about something, couldn't be shifted, unquote. The testimonies of DeVoe and Wright convinced Flood unalterably that a crime had been committed, a belief picked up by the New York Shipping and Commercial List on December 21. Quote, the inference is that there has been foul play somewhere and that alcohol is at the bottom of it. Keep in mind, as you're gathering facts, that this cargo is denatured alcohol, non-drinkable, but Mr. Flood somehow overlooked this detail. On December 23rd, Flood ordered an examination of the Mary Celeste, which was carried out by John Austin, surveyor of shipping, with the assistance of a diver, Ricardo Portunato. Austin noted cuts on each side of the bow caused, he thought, by a sharp instrument and found possible traces of blood on the captain's sword. His report emphasized that the ship did not appear to have been struck by heavy weather, citing a file of sewing machine oil found upright in its place. Austin did not acknowledge that the file might have been replaced since the abandonment, nor did the court raise this point. Portunato's report on the hull concluded that the ship had not been involved in a collision or run aground. A further inspection by a group of Royal Naval Captains endorsed Austin's opinion that the cuts on the bow had been caused deliberately. They also discovered stains on one of the ship's rails that might have been blood, together with a deep mark possibly caused by an axe. These findings strengthened flood suspicions that human wrongdoing, rather than natural disaster, lay behind the mystery. On January 22, 1873, he sent the reports to the Board of Trade in London, adding his own conclusion that the crew had got at the alcohol, he ignored its non-potability, and murdered the Briggs family and the ship's officers in a drunken frenzy. They had cut the bows to simulate a collision, then fled in the yawl to suffer an unknown fate. Flood thought that Morehouse and his men were hiding something, specifically that Mary Celeste had been abandoned in a more easterly location, and that the log had been doctored. He could not accept that Mary Celeste could have traveled so far while unmanned. James Winchester arrived in Gibraltar on January 15th to inquire when Mary Celeste might be released to deliver its cargo. Flood demanded a surety of 15000 money which Winchester did not have. He became aware of rumors that Flood thought he might have deliberately engaged a crew that would kill Briggs and his officers as part of some conspiracy. On January 29th, During a series of sharp exchanges with Flood, Winchester testified to Briggs's high character and insisted that Briggs would not have abandoned the ship except in extremity. Thereafter, Flood's theories of mutiny and murder received two significant setbacks. First, scientific analysis of the stains found on the sword and elsewhere on the ship concluded that they were not blood. A second blow followed in a report commissioned by Howard Sprague the American consul in Gibraltar, from Captain Shufeldt of the U.S. Navy. In Shufeldt's view, the marks on the bow were not man-made, but came from the natural actions of the sea on the ship's timbers. With nothing concrete to support his own suspicions, Flood reluctantly released Mary Celeste from the court's jurisdiction on February 25th. Two weeks later, with a locally raised crew headed by Captain George Blatchford from Massachusetts, she left Gibraltar for Genoa. The question of the salvage payment was decided on April 8th when Cochrane announced the award. 1,700 pounds, or about one-fifth of the total value of ship and cargo. This was far lower than the general expectation. One authority thought that the award should have been twice or even three times that amount, given the level of hazard in bringing the derelict into port. The investigative journalist MacDonald Hastings says that the judge could scarcely have made a meaner judgment. Cochrane's final words were harshly critical of Morehouse for his decision, earlier in the hearing, to send Die Gracia under DeVoe to deliver its cargo of petroleum, although Morehouse had remained in Gibraltar at the disposal of the court. Cochrane's tone carried an implication of wrongdoing, which, says Hicks, ensured that Morehouse and his crew would be under suspicion in the court of public opinion forever. In 1931, an article in the Quarterly Review suggested that Morehouse could have lain in wait for the Mary Celeste, then lured Briggs and his crew aboard the Die Gracia and killed them there. Paul Begg in his account of the mystery, comments that this theory ignores undisputed facts. Die Gracia left New York eight days after Mary Celeste was a slower ship and would not have caught Mary Celeste before the latter reached Gibraltar. Another theory posits that Briggs and Morehouse were conspirators involved in a scheme to share the salvage proceedings. The unsubstantiated friendship between the two captains has been cited by commentators as making such a conspiracy plausible. Hicks comments that if Morehouse and Briggs had been planning such a scam, they would not have devised such an attention-drawing mystery. And also asks why, if Briggs was intending to disappear permanently, he left his son Arthur behind. Other theories of foul play have suggested an attack by Riffian pirates who were active off the coast of Morocco in the 1870s. Charles Ede Fay, in his 1942 account, observes that pirates would have looted the ship, yet the personal possessions of the captain and crew, some of significant value, were left undisturbed. In 1925, the historian John Gilbert Lockhart surmised that Briggs, in a fit of religious mania, had slaughtered all on board and then killed himself. In a later edition of his book, Lockhart, who had by then spoken to Briggs' descendants, apologized and withdrew this theory. Captain David Williams brings us this reenactment of the ill-fated voyage from his website at www.deathwhale.com. We catch up with life aboard the little half brig in the Azores on the 23rd of November, 1872, where we see her sailing due east with all her sails trimmed to a strong southwest breeze. We can piece together much about the trip and the condition of the seas because the logbook was recovered from mate's cabin. It showed the tract of the vessel up to 24 November. The first mate's log slate was also found with an entry dated 25 November, showing the position of the ship on that date. In addition, we also have the sworn testimony of the crew of the Die Gracia, who was not more than 300 miles from the location of the Mary Celeste during this period. On board, we notice first mate Albert Richardson gauging speed by hurling wood chips over the bow and counting the seconds until they drift past the stern. He computes her speed at eight knots, then turns his attention to calculating their position, reckoning they are at latitude 3656 north, longitude 2920 west, about 227 nautical miles directly east of Santa Maria Island. The wind increases all morning. At noon, Mate Richardson orders her sails shortened, putting a reef in her main sail, main gaff topsail, main topmost staysail, and middle staysail. As the afternoon progresses and the wind continues to strengthen, one at a time, he has the crew furl the main staysail, four royal, four topgallant, and flying jib. The wind reaches a moderate gale by seven that evening, increasing her speed to nine knots. The night ahead, promising to be a stormy one, Mate Richardson consults with the captain, and together they see to it that all hatches are secured and that all the six windows around the cabin are battened tight with canvas and boards. At 8 p.m., when the first watch comes on duty, the storm is raging, making it necessary to put a reef in her foresail and double reef in her upper topsail and furl her lower topsail. Midnight passes, and they progress steadily. 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and 3 o'clock. The entry against each hour reads the same, eight knots. Soon the first streaks of dawn will be visible. At 5 a.m. the logbook reads, Made the island of St. Mary's, bearing east-southeast. Santa Maria Island was known as St. Mary's in the late 1800s. The point of land observed by the vessel's watch, using this bearing, was probably near Panta Cabristante on the northwestern extremity of the island. The fact that the ship had been pushed forcefully along by a gale blowing hard out of the southwest, is supported by the course taken by Captain Briggs around Santa Maria Island. The Strait of Gibraltar, entrance to the Mediterranean Sea, lies on a latitude 60 miles south of his present position. Therefore, the most direct would be to go south of Santa Maria Island. Yet, Captain Briggs steers the little brigantine north of the island. Why? The obvious reason would be to get on the lee shore and take a break from the rough seas. Maybe the captain's daughter, Sophia, was sick and had been crying the entire night. Maybe he promised Sarah a break from the pounding sea. Maybe the crew was demanding a hot food. The sea had been so rough the last few days that cook Edward Head was not likely able to fire the galley stove, let alone cook a meal. If you have ever been on a sailing vessel of this size during a heavy wind, you would know better than to ask the cook for hot food. Cooks on sailing vessels are no different today as they were 130 years ago. No cooking whatsoever goes on during a gale. It was 5 a.m. when they spotted Santa Maria and 8 a.m. when the eastern point of the island bore south-southwest six miles distant. The trip along the 10-mile breadth of the Santa Maria had taken three hours, and then they dropped anchor for several hours. Or she slowly sailed about in the area with only the jib and 4 topmast staysail to hold her in place. It was likely around 6 a.m. when the cook knowing that they would soon be on the lee side of the island, started a fire in the galley stove. Sometime after eight in the morning on the 25th, something dreadful happened on board the Mary Celeste, causing an experienced master mariner to place his wife and two-year-old daughter and seven other adults beside himself into a yawl with a limited freeboard and hastily abandon a perfectly seaworthy 101-foot, 282-ton vessel. The captain had to believe As everyone else, that staying aboard the Mary Celeste was extremely dangerous. As the Die Gracia salvage crew noted, most of the sails were furled when the Mary Celeste was found, which leads one to believe that whatever had happened on board happened moments before they departed the lee side of Santa Maria. Likely, while hoved to near shore or anchored, Sarah tended to Sophia as the cook prepared their first hot meal in days. After the crew ate, they took a well-deserved smoke break and the cook cleaned the pots and stowed things away. Then, sometime after 8 a.m., the captain gave the orders to pump the bilges and run up the sails, putting order back into the Mary Celeste. Knowing their new course to be a safe one, he took his wife and retired for a nap, leaving the first mate in charge with instructions to call him only if needed. We know this because the captain's bed was reported unmade, something that never happened on board a well-run ship in 1872, unless the captain was in the bed or intended to go back to it later. The seaquake erupted, just as Mary Celeste was about to depart. The ship shook violently, knocking her wooden compass stand over and breaking the compass housing. The up-and-down motion bounced the large drinking water cast loose from its chocks on the main deck and danced the huge cast-iron galley stove out of place, likely flinging open the stove door or bouncing one of the top lids off to the side, allowing smoke and embers to whirl out of the stove. The severe vibrations also jarred the barrels of alcohol she carried, loosening the stays on nine barrels, spilling almost 500 gallons of raw alcohol into the bilge. The men pumping the bilge must have been knocked off their feet because they stopped what they were doing, leaving the sounding rod and bilge valve on the deck. The sailors up in the rigging, in the process of setting the foresail and upper and lower topsail, might have been jolted so hard that they fell into the sea or landed hard on the deck, showing reason why the fore, lower topsail was only partly set. The foresail gear was left dangling, explaining why the gear was later found broken with the clew lines and bunting gone. The fore braces on the port side were placed out of order, no doubt due to the hysteria of the men. Some of the other running rigging was left hanging loose for the same reason, which explains why two sails apparently tore away from the yards and blew overboard during the time the Mary Celeste sailed as a ghost ship. Arthur Bradford was right in his book, Williams continues, when he said the cause of the disaster was an outside destructive force, not something within the ship. However, he made a mistake in developing his waterspout theory by assuming the blown-away sails meant only one thing— excessive wind he never reasoned that in a normal breeze a loose flapping sail could be torn away and or ripped to shreds within a few days if not set properly the leading theory up until bradford published his book was that alcohol fumes were somehow responsible he belittled this idea by pointing out that if any alcohol that leaked into the bilge it would be mixed with water and pumped out every day when the bilge was tended if there had been an alarming amount of alcohol in the bilge water. Bradford reasoned, the seamen would have notified the captain and they would have vented the bilge at all cost. The alcohol expert consulted by Bradford added that, in his opinion, had there been a dangerous alcohol leak, there would have been an explosion and a fire, leaving no doubt as to the cause of the abandonment. No one reasoned that a violent shaking of the cargo during a sea quake would cause nine barrels of alcohol to empty into the bilge in less than a minute. There can be little doubt the hull of the Mary Celeste, like an echo chamber, thunderously reverberated the hammering on her bottom planks, inciting the God-fearing crew to think Judgment Day had arrived. To make matters worse, the vibrations likely caused mental confusion, making it more difficult for the officers to decide on the proper action. In such a moment, one would also wonder how well the German crew understood orders yelled at them in English. Before the first shocks ended, the entire ship began to permeate with alcohol fumes. Fearful of an explosion, the crew dropped whatever they were doing and ran to open the forehatch to inspect the cargo, throwing the hatch cover to the side. They also quickly opened the lazarette hatch and the fore and aft skylights in an attempt to air out the lower decks. However, they did not open the main hatch in agreement with the evidence because, at this point in time, the yawl was still latched to the cover. Shortly after the main shocks, the aftershocks began and more smoke, embers, and sparking bits of burning wood bellowed from the hot stove. Maybe William Head was brave enough to close the stove as best he could, but it is doubtful he or anyone else lingered in the galley for any length of time. The fear of catching on fire in a pending explosion would have caused any member of crew to stay as far away from the galley as possible. No wonder they did not take any personal items, since they had to pass by the dancing stove to get to their chest in the forecastle. No mention was made of the condition of the stove's flue or what type of flue system the stove was equipped with. Nevertheless, one would expect some means of exhausting the burning ash and smoke, since the galley was setting just below the canvas. Whatever matter of exhaust the stove was equipped with was likely lost when it was shaken from its chocks. Other safety standards, such as shielding and other means of fire prevention, was also likely breached when the stove was bounced up and down on the galley floor. Under such a situation, the alcohol fumes could explode at any second, and everyone knew it. Captain Briggs did the only rational thing he could do. He yelled out the orders to abandon the Mary Celeste. In a mad dash, someone grabbed an axe and quickly cut the yawl loose from the main hatch, and everyone helped drag it over to the starboard rail. At this point, the man with the axe grabbed the main peak halyard from the belaying pin in the pin rack, played out a good section, placed the line on the rail, and whacked it through at the same time, making a deep cut into the rail. He let the loose end go, took the end of the line he had just cut off the halyard, and tied it to the yawl. They heaved the yawl over the starboard side and secured it with the line cut from the halyard. The captain put his wife and daughter in the small boat, snatched his chronometer, sexton in the ship's papers, and jumped in. The crew joined them. At this point, Sarah praying and Sophia screaming and everyone else near panic, one of the crew secured the other end of the halyard to the rail, and they all drew away. That was the standard procedure in those days when a ship was abandoned during a fire. The idea was to tie your lifeboat a safe distance off the stern and hope the fire went out before the vessel burnt to the waterline. The crew could pull themselves back on board when the danger was over and claim salvage to whatever remained. However... As luck was going for the crew of the Mary Celeste, another aftershock might have occurred, sinking the yawl, turning its mast into a sea anchor, and ripping the halyard loose from the rail. But what are the odds the little boat was sunk immediately? The problem in recreating what might have happened on the yawl is that we have no real description of this vessel. The info given by others is that the boat is 15 to 20 feet in length, without mention of whether it is a rowboat or a sailing yawl. If we assume Captain Briggs was not a complete idiot, then we must also assume that the yawl was capable of carrying everyone. It was likely closer to 20 feet in length and carried a sail along with at least one set of strong oars, maybe two. There might have also been emergency provisions stored on board. The boat was likely lashed to the main hatch because it was too big to fit on the stern davits. If the yawl was a large 20-foot lifeboat, we can take a different view of what might have happened to the crew after they departed the Mary Celeste, especially in view of what appeared in the Liverpool Daily Albion on 16th of May, 1873. It was reported then that two rafts had been found by fishermen from a small town off the coast of Spain. One of the rafts had a corpse lashed to it and was flying an American flag. The American flag was missing from the Mary Celeste. The second raft held five decomposing bodies, but no mention was made as to how long the bodies might have been decomposing. Was this the crew? Suppose moments before you realized the mother ship was not going to explode, the halyard holding the yawl up the stern somehow parted or came unknotted. You know you forgot the last wheel, something a good captain would have done. What do you do now if you were Captain Briggs? "'Would you try to catch up with your vessel and your valuable cargo, "'hoping the wind would change and turn her back into your little boat? "'Or would you turn the yawl about and head back to the safety of Santa Maria?' "'Captain Briggs had his sextant and charts. "'Maybe he tried to catch the Mary Celeste. "'They might have lived for weeks on rainwater and fish. "'The yawl could have broke apart in heavy seas. "'The survivors could have lashed together two crude rafts "'and drifted for a long time before a fiend found off the coast of Spain.' Mary Celeste sailed on 370 nautical miles in a westerly direction as a ghost before being found nine days later. Those who think it impossible for her to travel so far in such a short period with only two small sails set should realize that she was carried more by the Azores current than by the wind. The main Gulf Stream passes close to the Grand Banks, south of Newfoundland, where it branches into two currents, the North Atlantic and the Azores currents. The North Atlantic turns north, just east of Newfoundland and flows east toward the British Isles. The Azores current flows east at about two nautical miles per hour past the Azores Islands towards the shores of Portugal before turning south. Carried by this current, the Mary Celeste could have traveled up to 50 nautical miles per day, making it reasonable that a Die Gracia came upon her where she did. Thank you, Captain Williams, for a good theory and a very plausible explanation. The New York World of January twenty-fourth, 1886, drew attention to a case where a vessel carrying alcohol had exploded. The same journal's issue of February ninth, 1913, blamed loss of alcohol through several porous barrels in Mary Celeste's cargo for creating gases that may have caused or threatened an explosion in the hold. Oliver Cobb was a strong proponent of this theory as providing a sufficiently alarming scenario, rumblings from the hold, the smell of escaping fumes, and possibly an actual explosion, for Briggs to have ordered the evacuation of the ship. Lack of damage from an explosion weakens the case, but in 2006 an experiment was carried out for Channel 5 television in England by Andrea Sella of University College, London. He built a model of the hold, with paper cartons representing the barrels. Using butane gas, he created an explosion which caused a considerable blast and ball of flame, but contrary to expectation, no fire damage within the replica hold. What we created was a pressure wave type of explosion. There was a spectacular wave of flame, but behind it was relatively cool air. No soot was left behind, and there was no burning or scorching. Cobb believed that the transfer to the yawl may have been intended as temporary. He speculated from DeVoe's report on the state of the rigging and the ropes from the ship's main halyard may have been used as a tow line attaching the yawl to the ship. Thus, when the danger had passed, the company could return on board. The theory supposes that the line parted and Mary Celeste sailed away empty while the yawl foundered with its occupants. Begg observed some illogicality in attaching the yawl to a vessel that the crew thought was about to explode or sink. Hastings asks whether Briggs, an experienced captain, would have effected a panicky abandonment of the ship when, if the Mary Celeste had blown her timbers, she would still have been a better bet for survival than the ship's boat. If this is what happened... Then Briggs, quote, behaved like a fool, worse, a frightened one, unquote. In the decades that followed, fact and fiction became intertwined. As early as June 1883, the L.A. Times retold the Mary Celeste story with invented detail. Every sail was set. The tiller was lashed fast. Not a rope was out of place. The fire was burning in the galley. The dinner was standing untasted and scarcely cold. The log was written up to the hour of her discovery. Twenty years later, in the November 1906 Overland, Monthly, and Out West magazine, Mary Celeste was recorded as drifting off the Cape Verde Islands, some 1,400 nautical miles south of the actual location. Among many inaccuracies, the first mate was a man named Briggs, and there were live chickens on board. The most influential retelling, which, according to many commentators, ensured that the Mary Celeste affair would never be forgotten, was the story in the January 1884 issue of the Cornhill Magazine. This was an early work of author Conan Doyle, then a 25-year-old ship's surgeon. Doyle's story, entitled J. Habakkuk Jefferson's Statement, did not adhere to the facts. He renamed the ship Marie Celeste. The captain's name he gave was J.W. Tibbs. The fatal voyage took place in 1873 and was from Boston to Lisbon. The vessel carried passengers in the story, among them the Epophanous Jepson. In the story, another passenger, a fanatic named Septimus Goring, with a hatred of the white race, has suborned members of the crew to murder Tibbs and take the vessel to the shores of western Africa. Here, the rest of the ship's company is killed, save for Jepson, who is spared because he possesses a magical charm that is venerated by Goring and his accomplices. Author Conan Doyle had not expected his story to be taken seriously, but Sprague, still serving as the U.S. consul in Gibraltar, was sufficiently intrigued to inquire if any part of the story might be true. In 1913, the Strand magazine provided another alleged survivor's account from one Abel Fosdick, supposedly Mary Celeste's steward. In this version, all on board except Fosdick were drowned or eaten by sharks when a temporary platform on which they had crowded to watch a swimming contest collapsed into the sea. Unlike Doyle's story, this was proposed by the magazine as a serious solution to the enigma, but it contained many simple errors. Griggs for Briggs, boys for Morehouse, Briggs' daughter as a 7-year-old child rather than a 2-year-old, a crew of 13, and an ignorance of nautical language. Many more people were convinced by a plausible literary hoax of the 1920s perpetrated by an Irish writer, Lawrence J. Keating, again presented as a survivor's story, one John Pemberton. This told a complex tale of murder, madness, and collusion with the Die Gracia. It included basic errors such as using Doyle's name, Marie Celeste, and misnaming key personnel. Nevertheless, the story was so convincingly told that the New York Herald Tribune of July 6, 1926 thought its truth beyond dispute. Hastings describes Keating's hoax as an impudent trick by a man not without imaginative ability. In 1924, the Daily Express published a story from a retired naval war hero, Captain R. Lucy, whose informant, allegedly, was Mary Celeste's former bosun. No such person is recorded in the registered crew list. In this tale, Briggs and his crew are cast in the role of predators. They sight a derelict steamer, which they board and find deserted. 3,500 pounds worth of gold and silver in its safe. They decide to split the money, abandon the Mary Celeste, and seek new lives in Spain, which they reach by using the steamer's lifeboats. Hastings finds it astonishing that such an unlikely story was, for a time, widely believed. Readers, he says, were fooled by the magic of print. Chambers' Journal of September 17, 1904, suggests that the entire complement of Mary Celeste was plucked off one by one by a giant octopus or squid. According to the Natural History Museum, giant squid can reach 49 feet in length, and they have been known to attack ships. Author Begg remarks that while such a creature could conceivably have picked off a crew member, it could hardly have taken the yawl and the captain's navigation instruments as well. Other explanations have suggested paranormal intervention, An undated edition of the British Journal of Astrology describes the Mary Celeste story as a mystical experience, connecting it by processes of reasoning beyond the power of ordinary human understanding with the Great Pyramid of Giza, the lost continent of Atlantis, and the British-Israel movement. The Bermuda Triangle has been invoked, even though Mary Celeste was abandoned in a completely different part of the Atlantic. Similar fantasies have considered theories of abduction by aliens and flying saucers. So as you can see, Mary Celeste has gotten the full treatment. As the Mary Celeste story continues, now thoroughly jinxed, she left Genoa on June 26, 1873 and finally arrived in New York on September 19. The Gibraltar hearings with newspaper stories of bloodshed and murder had made her an unpopular ship. Hastings records that she, quote, rotted on wharves where nobody wanted her, unquote. In February of 1874, the consortium sold the ship at a considerable loss to a partnership of New York businessmen. Under this new ownership, Mary Celeste sailed mainly in the West Indian and Indian Ocean routes, regularly losing money. Details of her movements occasionally appeared in the shipping news. In February of 1879, she was reported at the island of St. Helena, where she had called to seek medical assistance for her captain, Edgar Tuthill, who had fallen ill. Tuthill died on the island— Encouraging the idea that the ship was cursed, he was her third captain to die prematurely. In February of 1880, the owners sold the Mary Celeste to a partnership of Bostonians headed by Wesley Gove. A new captain, Thomas L. Fleming, remained in the post until August of 84, when he was replaced by Gilman C. Parker. During these years, the ship's port of registration changed several times before reverting to Boston. There are no details of the ship's commercial activities during this period, although Brian Hicks, in his study of the affair, asserts that Gove tried hard to make a success of her. In November of 84, Parker conspired with a group of Boston shippers who filled Mary Celeste with a largely worthless cargo, misrepresented on the ship's manifest as valuable goods, and insured it for $30,000. On December sixteenth, Parker set out for Port-au-Prince, the capital and chief port of Haiti. On January 3, 1885, Mary Celeste approached the port via the channel between Gonave Island and the mainland, in which lay a large and well-charted coral reef, the Rocheloy Bank. Parter deliberately ran the ship up on this reef, ripping out her bottom and wrecking her beyond repair. He and the crew then rowed themselves ashore, where Parker sold the salvageable cargo for 500 to the American Consul and instituted insurance claims for the alleged value. When the consul discovered what he had bought was almost worthless, the insurance company began a thorough investigation which soon revealed the truth of the overinsured cargo. In July of 1885, Parker and the shippers were tried in Boston for conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. Parker was additionally charged with willfully casting away the ship, a crime known as barratry, and at the time carrying the death penalty. The conspiracy case was heard first, but on August 15th, the jury announced that they could not agree on a verdict. Some jurors were unwilling to risk prejudicing Parker's forthcoming capital trial by finding him guilty on the conspiracy charge. Rather than ordering an expensive retrial, the judge negotiated an arrangement whereby the defendants withdrew their insurance claims and repaid all they had received. The barretry charge against Parker was deferred, and he was allowed to go free. Nevertheless, his professional reputation was ruined, and he died in poverty three months later. One of his co-defendants went mad, and another committed suicide. Begg observes that if the court of man could not punish these men, the curse that had deviled the ship since her first skipper, Robert McClellan, had died on her maiden voyage, could reach beyond the vessel's watery grave and exact its own terrible retribution. Oh, the stories the Mary Celeste could have told us. In August of 2001, an expedition headed by the marine archaeologist Clive Custler announced that they had found the remains of a ship embedded in the Rochaloy Reef. Only a few pieces of timber and some metal artifacts could be salvaged, the remainder of the wreckage lost within the coral. Initial tests on the wood indicated that it was the type extensively used in New York shipyards at the time of Mary Celeste's 1872 refit, and it seemed the remains of the Mary Celeste had been found. However, dendrochronological tests carried out by Scott St. George the Geological Survey of Canada showed that the wood came from trees, most probably from the U.S. state of Georgia, that would still have been growing in 1894, about 10 years after the ship's demise. There has never been a clear consensus on any one scenario. It is a mystery that has tormented countless people, including the families of the lost sailors and hundreds of others who have tried in vain to solve the riddle. The ghost ship may be the best example of the old proverb that the sea never gives up its secrets. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can find all our episodes at 1001 com and join in the conversations at com slash 1001heroes. 1001 Heroes is now listened to in over 150 countries around the world, and that's all thanks to you. We ask you to share our show with your friends so we can grow. Facebook is a great way to share because our shows are all there at facebook.com slash 1001heroes. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.